Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I hope that's not a statement of things to come. Good afternoon. Welcome to Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. I am Mark Liversidge and I'm delighted to be here in the chair for Bums on Seats, the show looking at the triple frontier of film on cinemas, movie and Netflix this week. Uh, thank you for joining us and being our fishermen's friends and I can't think of a sequitur for Under the Silver Lake. Those are the films we're going to be talking about today as well as an interview with Carol Morley. Uh, I've already ruined the, the uh, reviewers in the studio at my terrible punnage. Uh, what we're going to do today for a little bit different is just try and, and give you a little bit of ourselves by introducing us so i'm going to start off by telling you that my favorite horror film of all time it's quite a divisive genre genre even and our first film today is a horror film to all intents and purposes so my favorite horror film of all time is john carpenter's the thing not only a brilliant remake but just full of great dialogue a downbeat ending and some of the best practical effects of all time probably slightly less long-winded than that our reviewers today are from the left starting with me right um hello my name is yozzy osman i don't like horror films so um i guess i've only seen like three or four but probably my favorite is um jordan peele's get out which is a good opening for today hopefully. Is a very good opener for today because i thought that was brilliant um emma marchant <laughs> and i i actually love get out as well and i don't watch a lot of horror films but i'm gonna say not exactly my favorite but the one that scared me the most was the blair witch project a classic, but I mean, it really, that really stayed with me for a very long time. I'm Alistair Ryder. I'm a fan of horror movies and my favourite changes uh, quite constantly, but um, following up from Mark choosing a remake, I will go for David Cronenberg's Take on the Fly as my favourite. Uh, which was the first horror film I ever saw, and I will talk about at length, but not today. <laughs> and and uh, Lorcan O'Neill, uh, big fan of the genre. I'd say today the one that pops to mind is probably The Innocence. Classic. Uh, more of a psychological thriller, maybe, but definitely scarier than most horror films and i think also a, a good way to lead into today's film which is maybe not a classic horror film in that sense but we'll get into that also great that we've mentioned jordan peele you will know him hopefully from his previous film get out which picked up several awards a couple of years ago and he's now back with us Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me, and I'll keep you safe. There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But you have a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. What are you people? It's us. Creepy. So, Yossi, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what Us is about? 
Yes, I can do, but I don't want to give too much away because I feel like it's one of those films where you probably shouldn't know too much. However, um, so it stars Lupita Nyong'o um, and she is, uh, she's had a trauma- traumatic event in her childhood, which the film opens with, which we won't go into detail on. Um, and then uh, many, many years later, she goes back to the same place where this traumatic event happened with her family. Uh, and it all starts to get a bit weird when they notice some strange visitors standing standing outside their house who look just like them. And um, I think that's as far as we go in terms of... That's as much as I can say, I think, really. Um, but I, I have to say, I've thought about it a lot since we all went together to see it last night, which was lovely. Um, Except me, but let's oh, not sorry, go into that right now. I couldn't oh, make it, so whoops. it's not your fault. Oh, <laughs> gosh, my bad. Sorry. Um, I'm not taking it personally at all. The four reviewers saw it last night. It's but nice that you all got social lives outside of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we try. Um, oh, you sound so sincere, Mark. <laughs> but I have to say, and uh, some, as somebody who was a bit nervous, because there's so much hype about this film, and Get Out, obviously, for Jordan Peele, was such a great starter, um, I was worried it was going to be a bit it was going to let me down and and it didn't it's a very very different film to get out and i'm sure we'll all explain why uh coming up but um it it was such a good film it wasn't as scary as i expected because i am a, a wimp with horror films but it was creepy and the concept he's such a conceptual director from his first two films that that were explored were really really interesting and and also i just thought it was really enjoyable. I had such a good time watching it. And the more I think about it, the more I realise I, I enjoyed it more and more. Uh, I'm going to come to Alistair next. Uh, I think, well, I can't think of a film other than maybe The Avengers this year, which is arriving on quite as much hype as this one. Probably because from the success of Get Out and also the, the incredibly well-made trailers, which don't actually give that much away. Going into a film like this, which is as hyped as this one, how do, how do you react to that? Do you go in with a certain heightened level of expectation or are you able to just clear your mind and appreciate the film for what it is? Well, yeah, I mean, I try not to get affected by hype. Um, I only saw the trailer once when it launched and I haven't watched it since. I know that lots of other people have just been obsessively re-watching it because they're so excited uh, for the film, but I was already on board because I loved Get Out and, yeah... I, I think that if you're expecting another Get Out, that is where you will be disappointed because Get Out obviously works as a sort of a larger political, cultural commentary. Whereas here, Jordan Peele has said the only sort of parallel to life is the idea that we are our own worst enemy. That's basically as far as the idea goes. As And as I've been trying to unpack the themes in the film, which I'm not going to discuss in any detail, because as Yossi said, this is a film that should not be spoiled. The more I think about it, the more I realise that, yes, that is as far as the allegory for the film goes. We are our own worst enemy. And, yeah, it's a thing where you may have to recalibrate your expectations because he's not going to punch you in the face with yet another hard-hitting sort of analogy for America. But as a horror film, based around, you know, that simple idea of we are our own worst enemy, it's very effective. Uh, Emma, I think you were hoping to come in there, but uh, we are sharing mics in the studio because of uh, budgetary constraints. So, uh, <laughs> what did you want to come in with? There? I wanted to say that actually, I kind of, di- I didn't disagree with the Aussie in that I also really, really enjoyed this film, but I felt it was aligned with Get Out in that I think Jordan Peele does a great job of mixing horror, thriller, comedy, and in this, actually, more than Get Out, there is almost a little bit of kind of 
science fiction, if you like. I don't know. They like like um, Alistair said, it's not quite the clear cut allegory, but there are nods to so many other films within this film. I think there are homages to films that you know, like Black Swan or The Shining, all this kind of thing. There's so much that is within this. It's such a rich film. It's the performances. I really believe Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke, ex of Black Panther, um, as the married couple. I believe their family dynamic, um, and you're rooting for them. We were talking about they when they go to the beach, they meet up with their friends who are um, Tim Heidebecker and Elizabeth Moss. We were all saying that, you know, Elizabeth Moss, maybe we could have done with a bit more of her in it because who doesn't always need a bit more Elizabeth Moss? But it just was, again, I'm not a huge horror fan. I wouldn't, this didn't feel, this doesn't feel like genre horror so much. It feels like he just manages to mix up so many different vibes. And I think, yeah, I just think he's such an exciting, you know, these two films really held a super exciting director. So that's a three very positive notices for this. Are we going to make it a full house? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was uh, a little trepidatious uh, because I had some small issues with Get Out. I, um, as opposed to the others, I thought the the political mes- message was a bit too overt and a bit a little maybe a bit too jarring. And the comedy in Get Out, I feel, was also jarring and a bit distracting and a bit kind of common denominator. So after Jordan Peele won his Oscar, I was worried, is he going to kind of mature or do more of the same thing that he knows people like? And I think with this, he's definitely matured. Um, I love the more kind of, after that god-awful Captain Marvel movie, um, where this the supposed good guys start off on a mission uh, to invade a desert planet and kill the supposed bad guys who are just a bunch of people starving and, and living in squalor. Um, Jordan Peele has utilized his genre here to create a very universal universally accessible message of kind of for every finger you point is three pointing back at you um and the the comedy's much better mixed in it's just it feels more the the circumstance of the environment without being inappropriate like something horrific will happen he'll let the time pass and then slowly maybe a bit of humor comes in just as these people try to react to the situations uh, and if you want to hear Lockin's extended thoughts on how terrible Captain Marvel is, don't forget Bums and Seats is available as a podcast from iTunes or the Cambridge 105 website. Uh, touching on that point then in a bit more detail, uh, I'm a regular visitor to horror film festivals and the like, and quite often you see humour used in horror films as that sense of release. What struck me about this was there are two or three particular periods uh, when, when things have really gone a bit awry, when there are, are there quite extended sequences of, of characters making jokes. Uh, rather than just a, a one one-liner, you'll get two or three in succession. Normally, that would completely dissipate any kind of tension in the film, but actually here, the tension does seem to sustain. Would you agree? Yeah, um, and I think that the most effective use of comedy is actually in one of the more sort of disturbing, creepy moments, which I'll, I'll just allude to it vaguely. It's a home invasion scene involving Elizabeth Moss and uh, Tim Heidecker's characters. And what happens in that scene is incredibly graphically violent and it lingers on Elizabeth Moss's face like for ages as she's simple acts like just putting lipstick on become the creepiest things you've ever seen. And during this really unsettling moment, Jordan Peele simultaneously throws jokes about Alexa not ringing the police and playing uh, a song by the NWA. Which, we which, cannot which I cannot say. say the title of. Um, and, yeah, it's... I can't imagine any other filmmaker using such a, a disturbing moment also as a source of comedy. As we said, horror movies often use jokes to alleviate the tension, but rarely have I seen it within the exact same sequence. Uh, I, I think we, we can't... Oh, Emma, you want to come in again? I, all right, I've only... OK, very, very quickly, I was just going to say, we haven't talked about the performances at all, but remember, of course, you've got eight 
I guess eight major eight major actors in this play, eight major characters playing both the characters and both their doppelganger, if you like, and themselves. And in particular, I was so impressed with Lupita Nyong'o, particularly her physical. Um, the, the way she physically plays herself and then her doppelganger, I haven't seen anything as good as that since David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers with Jeremy Irons. There you go. <laughs> and I, I would agree with that. And I think when you know more about the story and you know more about Lupita, Lupita Nyong'o's character, the performance actually, it, it's even more impressive. She's so good at playing... She's basically playing two different characters with the same kind of story arc. And it's... Oh, I just thought she was absolutely brilliant in it. And... I just, I just want to. Oh, sorry, Lorcan. Oh, no, I was just going. And as, as aside from uh, Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke having like really great chemistry and such a believable couple, um, I'm a big fan of Tim Heidecker. And congrats to Jordan Peele for making get, making him genuinely intimidating, and terrifying. <laughs> and I think what also struck me as well is is we have these eight lead characters. You say two families, both living in, in beach houses, and they each play a dual role because of the nature of the film. But also, each of the, the, the dualities, each of the eight other characters are distinctly different from each other. They're not all just playing the same version of their, their doppelganger. Um, you see different bits coming in from the different characters. Tim Heidecker has a sort of sleazy creepiness as, he, as his doppelganger comes forward. Um, people have been already on, on Twitter yesterday talking about Lupita Nyong'o as an Oscar candidate. Do we think she's at that level in this? Well, I mean, I don't think that us will be the Oscar player that Get Out was um because, it, again, it's a sort of more thematically uh, unruly film that takes longer to pick apart rather than you get what it's trying to say immediately. Um, but Lupita Nyong'o is fantastic in it, and it is the best performance I've seen so far this year. Um, but all it left me thinking was, she won the Oscar for 12 Years a Slave, and since then has just been given completely thankless roles. Why hasn't she been given like roles of this calibre since then? Because, I mean, if she's this good... You know, she's think, black. think of all of these great performances we've been missing out on. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to yeah. say it, but I do think that is a factor. Yeah. And actually, one thing I wanted to say about this film, which I, I picked up on, um, was that I was watching it and Jordan Peele has had to come out and say, this film is not about race. And everyone thinks because it's a black family at the centre of it, that it is about race. And also because of his last film, obviously, which was very much about race. Um, but... It was very refreshing to watch a horror film with a black family at the centre of it. And there was nothing... And, and just treat it as a normal horror film, as an, you know, and, and nothing, it, nothing highlighted about the fact, you know, that they're black. It was so refreshing and it just made me realise you don't get that in the genre. Can I just say that I don't know if I would call Black Panther and Star Wars thankless roles roles for Lupita Nyong'o though. I don't. Oh, I mean, no, I don't in Star know. Wars, it's she's, like a voiceover role. Yeah, okay, but you know, it's it's building her own brand. She's a pretty. I would suggest she's a fairly savvy actress. She does some excellent. She you know her um, modelling work on the side. She does. I, I don't know. She seems very hot right now, and I wouldn't be to use I, the words of Hansel. <laughs> I, th I think to play devil's advocate on that, we we are all heavily steeped in knowledge of film because we watch it regularly and we, we absorb it for this show. How much of a regular cinema audience would know that Lupita Nyong'o is Maz Kanata in Star Wars because she is completely CGI'd and because she descends, as in this film, so completely into performance? I think sometimes we, we, we are so close to these things that we don't necessarily appreciate how other people would see it. And for me, I, I, I would estimate if you, you know, sort of Brexit style away, if you went and did a poll, the majority of people wouldn't necessarily associate her with things like 12 Years a Slave and, and this. But they would associate it with Black Panther, which, let's face it, was one of the biggest films of last year and again Oscar nominated. I mean, but yeah. I do. I do think there is a question about the roles 
that she is getting. I, I do feel that she is, su- as we've seen, she is such a talented actress, and 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 she does deserve more roles of the caliber of something like Us. But she's she's not getting them, and I, I'm hoping that now this film and and what it's done and everything she's been in before she is getting there because she's she's absolutely brilliant i really think that that her performances and anything i've seen her in she's just a scene stealer uh, yeah. I, I stan her i am <laughs> she has got seven films in production i'd say including americana well, there I mean, we go i i think i stand th- correct don't forget <laughs> 12 years of slave was not that long ago she's still a relatively young actress mm. and i think that she's you know it's you've got a like I said, you've got to build your own brand, haven't you, a little bit in Hollywood. You can't necessarily I, I, pick I, all the interesting I, ones you want to I, do. I, I think, I, I, while you've been talking, I've just had a quick look on the Internet Movie Database. Other film websites are available. Um, her first role after uh, 12 Years a Slave was with the Liam Neeson action movie, Non-Stop. Oh, was that the plane film? That she was, is oh, a flight attendant. the unfortunate thing of watching that. It she's was terrible. A, yeah, she's a flight attendant in that movie. I think she maybe has five lines. Although, although small cameos in Liam Neeson films seem to be a good way to go because Florence Pugh had a, had a tiny role in The Commuter and then has, has gone on to much bigger and better things. So. The I, I Computer? Think she's got... The Commuter? The Capute? <laughs> uh, sorry, uh-huh. I, I didn't get that and be my pronunciation yeah, is terrible Tub, anyway. Toby can edit that out for the podcast. Just to uh, say, to go back to us very quickly, I agree with you, um, Yossi, and I didn't even, mm. the colour didn't even, I didn't even really think about the colour of the, of, of, of the family because, like I said, I just found their dynamics so enjoyable and so believable. I, I, I think that was, that was great. Really good. Uh, so, uh, I think we've all been in agreement on the film, if not necessarily some of the issues behind it. Uh, but um, we, we started this by talking about horror films. If our listeners are not necessarily fans of horror, would you still commend them to go and see this? Yes. yes. Absolutely. It's not like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the scariest film I've ever seen. It's, I would describe it more as a kind of disturbing, tense thriller, uh, which people seem to love. Yeah, and plus it's... We rarely get original studio films with this level of ambition anymore. So, you know, please support an original vision like this and hopefully we'll actually get some more grown-up filmmaking. It is smashing its opening weekend, I believe, which is excellent which news. It's brilliant and it's just so enjoyable. And, and I, I, am a hor- I don't like horror films at all and I hate jump scares and actually it really wasn't that bad so anybody can go and see it. As long as they are over 15. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thank you to the BBC as well for, uh, for uh, giving that, that rating. It is a 15 uh, and it is showing all three current Cambridge cinemas. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. So it's becoming increasingly difficult sometimes to find films in cinemas. Uh, our next film today uh, is showing in a few cinemas around the country. Uh, it was showing at the Prince Charles Cinema in London. I think it's on in Northampton tonight as well, if people fancy a trip. But the place where we've all watched it is on streaming service Mubi. Uh, it is the follow-up to It Follows from director David Robert Mitchell. It is Under the Silver Lake. We found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could be any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um. Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? 
a little. Uh, I'd just like to say that I'm not a fan of lazy reductivism. Uh, I'd like to say, but I can't, because I'm a huge fan of lazy reductivism. I'll compare any film to any other films that have come out previously. And I've seen this compared to to a whole host of of L.A. noirs, right up to things like The Big Lebowski, and a whole other set of things besides. So, is this a film which is actually just a, a composition of other people's greatest hits, or is it it's a film in its own right? I think that this is a boldly original film, and yeah, there are shades of The Big Lebowski, the shades of Inherent Vice, um, the shades of uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, and also the shade of uh, Southland Tales, which is a film that director uh, Richard Kelly uh, made after Donnie Darko that everybody hated. Um, and yeah, the reactions to Under the Silver Lake have been incredibly divisive. It played at Cannes last year, where it got as many boos as it did cheers, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's taken so long. Uh, to reach screens. It was originally supposed to come out last summer and has just been completely delayed because the reactions were so all over the place. I loved it. I think uh, it's my favourite film of the year so far. And, yeah, we'll we'll get into it more, but, it, again, it's similar to Us. It's the sort of bold, ambitious film that you can only make after you've had sort of a breakthrough success like It Follows. He wrote this before It Follows. I think he wrote this maybe 10 years ago. And, I mean, it it feels more relevant now than it would have done then, um, largely because the film's all about conspiracy theories. And I think that rather than believing in this conspiracy theory that Andrew Garfield's character finds himself wading into, it's more poking fun at and satirising the sort of people who believe in conspiracy theories. And right now in America, there are people who believe in a conspiracy theory uh, called QAnon, uh, relating to how Donald Trump is actually um, not being under investigation by Robert Mueller, but he's actually leading an investigation against Hillary Clinton and all the other Democrats that's going to lead them into jail. The sort of people who believe in that theory are exactly like Andrew Garfield's character in this. They lose, they disassociate themselves from reality. They end up fa- falling down the rabbit holes and perceiving some absolute nonsense as the new reality. And making fun of that type of person is always going to be funny. It does feel to me as if it's a, a, a film very much in that Big Lebowski tradition of, of Andrew Garfield stumbling his way through this. Uh, I think it's about two hours and 20 minutes and uh, it's quite a languid film it doesn't really rush to get anywhere uh, is this a film then to, to just sit back and embrace and enjoy i i definitely think so for for me the two two hours 20 minutes absolutely flies by um and i, I don't i don't quite agree with alistair on uh how you're supposed to interpret the main character i actually actually loved andrew garfield in this and i think his character is like uh i i, I think it's for me it's framed in a slightly different angle it's just kind of like uh, kind of how how you view the world and seeing the world and like trying not he's just basically trying to not live in the shadow of other people um, even though he himself is not very successful he's trying to make a name for himself doing various things he doesn't quite know what that is uh, so the only way he can subconsciously the only way he can kind of make any name for himself is by cracking this like giant code that's that run all over the world um, but yeah the film itself is I would say it's like Twin Peaks meets Hitchcock meets uh, Thomas Pinchon which is incredibly exciting for me and I con- completely agree I've with Alistair I think a lot of people have called this story derivative but I think it's wildly original um, it's and again like Alistair mentioned Inherent Vice came to mind which is a great adaptation of Thomas Pinchon's novel uh, and much like his work the plot is just constantly moving and teasing and breaking through with great little moments and um, 
on my first watch, I watched it back in the Sitges Film Festival last year, um, and on my second, uh, I just loved the the anarchy, the just so many great little moments. I think there's a scene with a songwriter character that I think for me will be a very tough scene for any movie to beat in 2019. Um, but watching it the second time, I was surprised how much of a solid narrative through line there actually was, and then it's just kind of peppered with all of this contagious fun. I, it's one I was debating in my own head because it's a very cine literate film, but it's also a film that sometimes just gives you a nudge on those references first. So quite often we we see uh, three female characters with different colour hair, and we get the clip from from How to Marry a Millionaire early on in the film, which it, 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 that is referencing. Uh, so th- there's there's a fair few references here which some people will get and some people won't, but the film does give you a a steer into some of those as well. Is that going a little too far in that? Is it expecting too much or not enough of the audience? The only one that went over my head was there's a film screening in a a Hollywood graveyard and I didn't realise until I watched the end credits but that film that they're watching is the director's debut film The Myth of the American Sleepover and the actresses who Andrew Garfield sees from that film are the actresses that he cast in the original film. So if you read into it there are a lot of nudge nudge wink wink references but as I said, I didn't know that until the end credits, and it played out completely fine uh, to me. It's if you look more into those references, it can get a bit navel gazing. But I didn't have that problem watching it. it. It feels just like a lot of fun. And there is a point as well when Andrew Garfield gets an amazing Spider-Man comic book stuck to his hand, yeah. and then has real trouble getting it off. So it's a film not afraid to have fun with itself. Really, to be fair to say, no, not not whatsoever. Um, I, th- I can see people uh, being turned off by the kind of untraditional narrative, and it doesn't it doesn't go places that you that you typically you typically see just especially noirs go. Noirs tend to follow a very strict formula, um, so I can imagine people just getting frustrated with like, oh, this isn't getting anywhere, and like they're still adding plot threads and characters, and there's only like half an hour left of the movie. Um, but I think it's it's definitely a film you can just lose yourself to, and there is. So much rewatch value in it. I know it's it's only started online. People trying to like break down all the secret little codes. I know like animals are a big thing, um, but I won't give any of that stuff away. Yeah, and like, I, I I know there's lots of people trying to break it down. I think that it is it, it's one of those Fight Club things where the people who will love this film and try to break it down the most are the things that the film is t- taking the mick out of. I wouldn't say taking the mick out of. I think I think just. Uh, Playfully nudging them, maybe gentle ribbing. Yeah, it's a, it's a gentle ribbing. And we, we we mentioned Southland Tales in the conversation there already. Uh, even for all of its critical disdain, it's still a film which people come back and try and unpick. Yeah. It's, do, you, do you think this one is going to stand repeat viewing? Oh no, definitely. I, I think that there will be a sort of a a, a a sort of a revision of the consensus on this film uh, once you unpack it. I mean, one of the things that critics have been complaining about is they think that it's quite misogynistic. And I can get that if you take it at face value, but again, I saw it as, you know, ribbing uh, Andrew Garfield's character's worldview, where, again, I mean, he's introduced sitting on his balcony, looking through binoculars at women sunbathing topless. You cannot, you know, think that the film isn't critiquing him doing this. And it's strange that people have just taken that face value and thinking that the film is misogynistic just because the character is 
And do we think this will also be a, a bit of a revision of Andrew Garfield's career as well? Uh, maybe uh, after the, the legacy of the Spider-Man films, where, where maybe he wasn't as well regarded, uh, people seeing him for, for his qualities that, that he had, which got him those roles in the first place. I think it's... Uh, I think it's I'm really glad, because he's... I mean, looking at the cast list, he's the name that sticks out. I know the film was made under a very tight budget, I think just shy of $9 million, so I imagine quite a bit of that went into just getting Andrew Garfield. Uh, so personally, like I'm a much bigger fan of Andrew Garfield now. I know that he, like stars, are often the reason movies get made, and I really like that he chose his film because he liked it, and he got it off the ground. Um, so hopefully, yeah, with uh, with a bit of revision, he can kind of solidify. He is kind of making a name for himself, doing like stage stage work as well, kind of making a more underground name for himself at the minute. Uh, so if you were interested by this and you would like to watch Under the Silver Lake, uh, you might have to head to London to see it in a cinema, but it's also available on streaming service Mubi, which has a seven-day free trial for new subscribers, uh, and I think it's got about another three weeks on the service before it drops off, as they have 30 films on, on a rotating one-in, one-out basis. And there's a few other similar films of both L.A.N.R. types and also I think John Carpenter's They Live is on there at the moment, so so a whole host of films to whet your appetite. Uh, so it's a service worth giving a try. Uh, you are listening to Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, still to come on the show today, we have reviews of Fisherman's Friends and Triple Frontier, as well as an interview with Carol Morley. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. So Carol Morley is an English film director, screenwriter and producer who's best known for her semi-documentary Dreams of a Life, released in 2011, and 2014 film The Falling, which starred Maisie Williams and Florence Pugh uh, in one of her first film roles. Uh, Carol Morley's new film, Outer Blue, sees Patricia Clarkson as a detective in an impressionistic thriller. Uh, Carol was at the screening of Outer Blue at the Arts Picture House this Thursday, and Yossi went along to speak to her before the screening. Yossi began by asking her why she chose to adapt a Martin Amis novel. Do you know your place in the universe? It's from a book, so it's a, an adaptation of a Martin Amis book called Night Train. I read the book and I was really intrigued by the themes of cosmology and the, and the woman detective. And in the book there is definite interest in time and, as I said, the cosmology and the detective. And I just grew hooked on that and that, that's where the beginning was. And then, of course, it deviates and goes all sorts of places. I think why I was really interested was the leading through with the Patricia Clarkson character, Mike as the detective, and seeing everything in the film through a woman's point of view. Not literally like looking as she looked, but the whole film is through her mind, if you like. So it starts off like it's in a, you're in a, a police procedural, a place you're familiar with. But as the film goes on, I think you go further and further away from that and realise that she's detecting herself. Mm. So it becomes more psychological than a standard police procedural. You've got this detective, kind of murder mystery, film noir, but then you've also got 
as you say, the physics and the cosmology and all those really interesting concepts in the film. How did you, what, what led you to deciding on how to balance those and what were your kind of decisions that you made, there, especially thinking about the book? There is always a point when you research a lot and I met astrophysicists and I met scientists and, and you're reading a lot around the subject matter itself and I hung out with homicide cops in America. So there was a lot of research at the heart of it, but there's a point when you have to, uh, become because I wrote it as well you have to become the characters and I think it's once the characters start uh, really coming to life they, I think they control the flow so for instance in this Patricia Clarkson's acquaintance as somebody that doesn't know anything about cosmology is the way cosmology is revealed mm -hmm. so it's not as though we're suddenly given uh, another character that, that at length you know takes over the film and starts to look at cosmology it's really she's meeting people along the way that are looking at black holes or looking at quantum mechanics and, and we're getting elements of that through that. And then of course she she has been looking at the ground her entire life and she starts to have to look up and within. Tony, did you know that your nose could come from a different star than your hand? And that we're all here because a star died? Aimed against God to believe that? It's not a belief, it's fact. Did you find it hard because they're quite, you know, it's quite complex looking at the world of cosmology in some of these physical terms. Did you find it quite hard to make that accessible to anybody watching? I met a young astrophysicist that was a university professor in America and I said, talk to me like you would if somebody that knew nothing. And I thought that was really helpful because then it enabled me knowing nothing, Mike, the lead character played by Patricia Clarkson, knowing nothing, to know how, what to deliver within the film, within the context of, of the mystery of cosmology and quantum mechanics. So you're, I, th I think the audience in a way are having to be the detective with the information that they're, they're seeing or glimpsing in the film. Um, I wanted to ask you actually about the, the lead character, Mike, and, and how you wrote this character. It's clear that she's had some sort of trauma in her life. She's, she's got her own issues and we see that through the film. How was it humanising her so that it didn't become this kind of, I don't know, cliched, troubled character? And, and how much did Patricia Clarkson input in that? What I do in a film with every character is give them a huge backstory that the audience is never gonna know. So. I think if you know their backstory, you know, from when they went to school, from uh, the relationships they've had, to their crisis in their life, to their tragedies, to their pleasures, if you have all of that, you kind of know how they're going to respond to things. So I think it's kind of twofold. There's the aspect where you're, you're developing characters that are fully rounded, but maybe not instantly likable. So not necessarily strong, but complex characters. And that certainly applies to the women because I feel I've got so annoyed with this term strong woman yeah. and the idea that every yeah, woman should be a role model. And it's like the burden of representation. Suddenly we, we have to be like really good or really, you know, like one or the other, but I like the, the complexity. And so, so I do think I'm, uh, in terms of Mike, the lead, the detective, I made her very fully rounded with a lot of history. There is much we can't see, detect or comprehend, yet we spend our lives trying to get to the heart of this dark energy, this dark matter. 
I'm just thinking, because what you were talking about, female characters yeah. and agency, that seems to be a very common theme in, in a lot of your films. Is that something that you want to continue to do? You know what? I don't think it's something I set out to do. It's inevitable. Because you, you feel sometimes life has become box ticking. You know, in order to have in- inclusion, people have to tick boxes. And I always feel if you let different people tell different stories, there'll be natural inclusion. Yeah. You don't have to do that. So it's just like, I don't set out to do it. It's just where my interest lies, where my passion lies. So I will end up usually looking at outsiders one way or another, because that's where my fascination lies, often with women, because women's stories are so undertold that they seem more interesting in a way. Yeah. They seem like, you, oh, I haven't, I don't know that, I want to explore that. So it's never setting out to do that, but it just seems to be what, what where I gravitate to. Afraid of the dark, Detective. And thank you so much to uh, Carol Morley for talking to Yossi. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Our next film today uh, is one which I I wasn't quite sure how our reviewers would react to. Uh, I do know that when I saw it at uh, the Arts Picture House last weekend, some of the audience members I was with, I was slightly concerned about their their physical health. They were laughing so hard at it. But I I have a suspicion that it might be one that divides audiences a little bit. Uh, It is based on the real-life story of the Cornish folk group who are the, also the title of the film, The Fisherman's Friends. I thought Ladies and gentlemen, we're The Fisherman's Friends. Oh, this is bloody talk show. No, no, I want these guys to sign up the Duke Manager. What kind of music were they singing? The Rock and Roll of 1752. The bottom line is, you've got a unique sound, and we believe we can help you get it released by a major label. <laughs> Jago said there may be room at the inn. As soon as they've signed on the dotted line, we'll get you out of there. These guys aren't interested in fame and fortune. All I don't understand is why anyone will buy a record sung by ten hairy-ass fishermen. Your songs transport the listener to distant shores. Your wake-up call. You need to push these guys overboard and let them sink without a trace. I've heard them sing with genuine passion about something we've all lost. You're singing in front of some big players here. Could be more important than that. Saving lives. I do get slightly teary-eyed reminiscent every time I hear a seagull because I was brought up uh, on the Kent coast. Uh, and also, uh, every time you would hear this, this big booming uh, maroon go off because that would be calling out the lifeboatmen. Uh, so I, maybe I was slightly more disposed to this film because I come from a similar kind of background. Maybe because I do a lot of music in my life and so, although I'm not a big folk musician, uh, I was always going to be more predisposed to that. Uh, Lorcan, how did you find Fisherman's Friends? Oh, this this film transported me uh, back to my youth in Ireland of uh, being trapped in a pub full of uh, dodgy old <laughs> nationalists who are just drunk enough to arbitrarily start singing now and then. Um, it, it weirdly weirdly reminded me of watching um, Fifty Shades of Grey, the first Fifty Shades movie, um, where I didn't really know anything about it going in other than it was a bit raunchy, and like the film starts and they mention like, a contract, she has to sign this contract, so I was like, oh, okay. So the film's going to be like, oh, she like, first bit setting up the characters, she signs a contract, and then she's introduced into this world of like, ooh, ah, mm. And then uh, there's some uh, consequences to signing the contract, and then at the end she has to reconcile her exciting new world with her boring old one. You know, basic, like, screenwriting stuff. Um, so I'm watching... 
I'm watching this, and uh, near the start, they mention the contract. They have to sign the record contract, and then it gets to half an hour in, and I was like, they they haven't signed the contract. And much like Fishman, uh, much like Fifty Shades of Grey, it's like, oh, they still haven't signed that contract. They it's an hour and a half in, they still haven't signed that contract. And in the interim, what we're subjected to is just random plot threads, some of which go somewhere, some of which drop dead as soon as they're introduced, uh, saving the local pub, um, the main singers, uh, pl- played by James Purifoy, who's not Thomas Jane. Um, he deals with, he's got alcoholism and uh, has a grudge with this local guy in the town that goes absolutely nowhere. Um, so I, I just found it meandering. Storytelling was particularly incompetent and I felt like I was watching a soap opera a la, a soap opera a la like Bally Kiss Angel if anyone remembers that one uh, yes, uh, sadly I do remember Bally Kiss Angel. Uh, and I think uh, you've possibly won the show already with your comparison of Fifty Shades of Grey to A Fisherman's Friends, which I did not see coming. Uh, Yossi, what was your take on it? That, so, <laughs> um, let me start with the positives. I do have a couple of positives. Um, the music, you know, they were all good singers. I quite enjoyed the sea shanties. Very good, very nice. Um <laughs> The I and I actually think there was some heart to it. Somewhere these filmmakers had charming ideas and I can't I can't dismiss the film entirely. Um but I really, really didn't enjoy it. In fact, I found myself getting quite irritable as it was going on because of basically Dawkins explained it. There were these random plot threads that went nowhere, that were added in for drama, but only at times where it suited the filmmakers, I guess. Um, there were characters that weren't really well developed. Um, it, it didn't feel like a film to me. You know, Lorcan said it, it was it was a soap opera. I think that's even giving it more credit than it's due. Like, I didn't think I was watching a film. It was not filmed like a film. It, it, the narrative was really shady in places. Um I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just so negative about it now. I realise that against the positives that I tried. I, I just, I, I found it really... Uh, if I was one of the fishermen's friends at the centre, because they're, they're a real uh, group, uh, if I was one, I'd be a little bit upset with how the film was done. I, ju- I just... Oh, I, I didn't engage with it at all. And maybe, that, uh, maybe I'm not supposed to. Maybe it's not made for people like me, but it, uh, I, I wasn't a fan. I mean, that, that's probably a question to ask because uh, I can remember seeing when, when we had the, the whole Cambridge Arts Picture House and, and Cineworld petition a few years ago, the demographics of the kind of people who, who go to cinemas in Cambridge that, that completed that survey. Uh, and it amazed me at the number of people that go to the cinema maybe once or twice a year. Is this a film for the once or twice a year cinema people rather than people like us who see you know, dozens or hundreds of films in, in the course of 12 no, months? No, I don't like that argument because... Sorry, Mark. Um, no, no, you, you stick to your guns. People are not stupid. Like, I, 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 even if they go and see a film, you know, once or tw- or twice a year, I, I don't think that this film was designed for anybody, really, just to, just to I don't know, it, I feel like that's doing a disservice to the people that are going to go and see the film. I mean, you, it was just, oh, it was, like, I'm just thinking about, so Noel Clark is in it, and I really like Noel Clark. I think he's brilliant. And he's playing this caricature villainous character with a crappy American accent. Can I say crap? Was that allowed? Yes. Uh, to anyone that was offended by that, I would I'm just like to apologise. <laughs> um, with this awful American accent. And it's so pantomime. I, I 
I can't believe it was made. Sorry. And just just to like a lot of the humor comes from uh, Daniel Mays. He plays the kind of a cynical London type that goes to sign up the fishermen in uh, Cornwall. Um, a lot of the comedy comes from like his quote unquote banter with the lads. Um, and but the humor was at off times very gruff and aggressive for like the tone of the movie. And there's even like uh, one moment where uh, Noel Clark. Uh, compares like jokingly compares like the plight of Cornish fishermen to those of antebellum like plantation workers. And it just felt exploitative that they got like him to say that line. I don't know. A lot of the humor was very strange and I don't know, a bit dodgy. And and that's the thing when they were trying to bring up serious issues, like there was the idea of these Cornishmen being very proud of being Cornish, and you know the divide between them and you know people from London, for example, that come to visit. Cornwall it did it didn't feel real to me and it also was a little bit offensive I mean we there was a term that we're not going to repeat but there was a term that was said where we were like actually that term's a little bit racist and it was kind of played for laughs or something yeah. wasn't it and it, it it's, it, it's it, a term I've heard used in a more derogatory sentiment than it is used in the film yeah it just it nothing felt real or fully developed and it did I was saying to these guys yesterday it did it did something that I really hate in films when you use a child to bring up kind of comedic effect because they're a child and oh isn't it funny but it wasn't funny and also she looked like she didn't even want to be in the film she looked like she didn't want to be there so it didn't even work on that on that nature like I just think it it Oh, maybe I'm I'm too negative because I do actually know people that enjoyed it. But it the, was... the, the one thing I would say is you you were you were quite generous there to the filmmakers that they went in with good intentions. Uh, I believe that they first came up with the idea for the film having seen the Fisherman's Friends performing on on the ITV morning program this morning. So that suggests to me it was maybe a little bit exploitative, and and they saw an opportunity to make a film, and and it took them about nine years to actually get it to the screen. I often have a, a thing when uh, there's a true story film that I go and watch, which I like to call the Wikipedia test. If I read the Wikipedia page and there are more interesting things about the true story than ended up on screen, and in this case, the fact that they were discovered by Radio 2's Johnny Walker, uh, rather than this, this uh, completely fictional radio exec, but also that, uh, that after the period in which the film is set, there was tragedy surrounding the group. Two of the, the people associated with the group were killed in a terrible accident. And, and you know, that, that's genuine emotion. So... Is it exploitative to actually try and just put in this forced story and try and make money from an audience around? I think well, the film definitely the film definitely had an audience from like gauging um, the people who are coming to see the film at the Picture House. Um, but my, I mean, the main issue here, and we're talking about whether or not uh, the film itself is exploitative, the film is shot so utilit the the visual style of the film is so utilitarian it's clear not a lot of thoughts gone into where to place the camera how to block the characters it's very much we're going to film this scene now scene 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 and there's no visual motifs there's so that feels like such a process rushed out i don't know if that's just maybe the inexperience of the filmmakers or if they were just trying to turn out something that would make a quick quick profit so they can maybe make something else we have this dichotomy though because on the one hand, I can see how terribly made this film is, uh, and and that, as you say, not even not even everyone's heart seemed to be in it. If you look at the, some of the you know, the child performances and things like that, but on the other side, there are people that I know, intelligent, well-rounded people that have really enjoyed this film. And actually, towards the end, uh, when when there is a tragedy that befalls the, the film, I was a little bit emotionally torn up, probably carried along by the emotion of the rest of the audience. How do we explain this? I don't know. I actually, I genuinely don't know how to answer that question because I also know people that enjoyed it and I feel quite bad that I am being so 
aggressively anti this film because there's clearly and I, and I do think I, st- I stand by my initial point that there is charm to this film and, and it was made somewhere with a bit of heart and I, th- I think that will pull you through it and maybe it wasn't for me and Lorcan but for some people it you know they it is it, it, it's got a story and actually the characters are quite quite charming i guess the the, the fisherman at the center of the film sure yeah it's it's i mean it's a it's a bright pleasant film that doesn't really touch on any kind of darkness or darker themes like imagine no. if you're just looking to it's a sunny day you've had a bit too much sun you want to see like a pleasant film with kind of like rascally old men then uh, yeah <laughs> i mean it is it, it's it's you at least you know i didn't fall asleep watching it and normally if there's a film that's bad i will fall asleep so that's a uh, uh, review that you can put on the poster. <laughs> uh, it's bums and seats appearing under the dictionary in damning with fame praise anytime near you. Uh, Fisherman's Friends is still showing all three Cambridge cinemas. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. I think we should move on hastily to our final film of the day, which is our Netflix release of the week. Uh, we are increasingly finding films being released on Netflix to the point where now it's it's a feature on the show. So ba 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 Netflix film of the week. Yeah, this week Triple Frontier. Everything we've done for the last 17 years, with nothing to show for it. You've been shot five times for your country, and you can't even afford to send your kids to college. If we had accomplished half the things that we've accomplished in any other profession, we'd be set for life. I'm your masters of war. The question is, do we finally get to use our skills for our own benefit? We're going to get Gabriel Martin Lorea. He's got over $75 million in cash. If we're not gone forever after you make your move, we are dead. Little bit of chat in the studio while uh, that trailer was playing, uh, contemplating whether or not we actually have enough to say about this film to fill the rest of the show. Uh, the thing that struck me when watching it was this: this was probably the most anodyne and predictable film I'd seen in, in a long time. Uh, so, Emma, would you like to give your views on it? I think that's a little harsh, Mark. Um, yeah, it comes to Netflix with a fairly, you know, it's got a fairly strong pedigree behind it. You've got J.C. Chandor directing it, who made a most violent year with Oscar Isaac, and you've got Catherine Bigelow, and I believe Mark Boll wrote the script who's an ex-journalist and you know they were both involved with obviously The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty so you've got some macho chops coming up behind this not to mention an interesting cast I think Oscar Isaac Garrett Hedlund Charlie Hunnam with one of the most interesting American accents I've heard in quite some time (laughs) I don't even know half the time I think he just gave up um Pedro Pascal, best known for me for Game of Thrones, obviously the Red Viper from Game of Thrones, and also ex-Narcos. And um, Ben Affleck, who I am going to say was my massive miscasting of the week. If you want to have a miscasting of the week, it was Ben Affleck, who just seemed to lump around in it, looking like he'd just come depressedly off the off the stage of off the set of Batman. But, you know, it's an old-fashioned kind of... It felt, it felt like a kind of 70s film, I suppose. These kind of guys, they've all got 
like, <laughs> what she really said, you have to have a close crop grey beard and some kind of, you know, roughly hair to be in their gang or whatever. And there they are. But it's nicely shot. It's in the... um. It's in the jungle. I think that I really like the opening because you've got because like, these are these ex special ops guys who are getting together to do the big heist on on the drug dealer, and it turns out to be much bigger than they think it is going to be, and that is quite interesting to me. The logistical reality of getting two hundred and fifty million dollars out of some unnamed country in the middle of South America. And that's what takes over. And it's about greed and it's about everything going wrong. And yeah, okay, predictable maybe, but it took me along for the ride for pretty... It's, it's a relatively tight hour and 50 minutes. And for most of it, it took me along with it. Uh, anyone like to provide a, a dissenting view or an agreeing view? I'm sure they will. Um, <laughs> I'm moderately dis- dissenting. Um, I'm eff- effectively on uh, the middle of the road on this film. Uh, I mean... As Emma just mentioned, the issue is the fact that it's got this pedigree. It's written by Mark Bowl. It's produced by Catherine Bigelow. They've, of course, done uh, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. And they're very specific kind of action films. They're gritty and they're hard-hitting. And this just feels incredibly polished in comparison. And whilst watching it, I was just wondering, you know, even if this was the exact same script being filmed, would this have made more of an impact if it was Catherine Bigelow uh, in the director's chair instead of J.C. Shandor, who doesn't have a background in action films? I mean, the closest thing he's made to an action film is All Is Lost, a film about Robert Redford on a boat in the middle of the sea. And if Catherine Bigelow was making it, she's more attuned to this sensibility. Would she have been able to make something interesting of this? Because whilst watching it, I was very bored, with the exception of one excellent helicopter sequence in the middle. And I was left thinking, um, I've never seen the film Sorcerer, um, William Friedkin's uh, remake of The Wages of Fear. I've never seen it, it's always been on my watch list. And watching this, I was just thinking, yeah, it's a poor man's sorcerer. I mean, that's, that's uh, I think we, we're very much, there's not even so much praise in there to be damning it with. I, I, I maybe will continue on the J.C. Chandler thread. Uh, he's made Margin Call, Most Violent Year, and, and all he's lost to think of his big films. I always go away from his films thinking, yeah, that was all right. Could have been better, maybe if someone else had directed it. So this, this is, uh, apart from Most Violent Year, which I, I, I probably the film of his I enjoyed the most. Uh, Yossi, what did you make of this one in particular, J.C. Chandler's direction? Thank you for reminding me that uh, A Most Violent Year about that because I really enjoyed that film but actually that makes me not like this film more um, because um, I, I have to say I I really didn't engage with it unfortunately uh, and for me my main issue was the characters, the character development in this film was very lacking um, I did not care for a single one of those characters so I could not be bothered when I was watching it I mean we've talked about Ben Affleck who talking about people who look like they don't want to be in a film <laughs> Goodness gracious me, he just looks like he wants to be anywhere else other than in that film. Um, but it, they were just very thinly drawn and we they, they weren't developed enough for me to want to be interested in them. And I, I'm very big on characters and character story and Emma, Emma might be uh, disagreeing with me here. But um, I, I just, for that, that was a really... That was that was really funny. But if we're talking about his direction, and Alice has already mentioned it, but the, the helicopter scene, there were some really good chase scenes um, that were very, very well shot. So give him props there. Is it worth... I mean, like you said, it is our Netflix film of the week. And obviously we do have to... I, well, I think I, anyway, would take a Netflix release within a different 
context, obviously, from a cinema release. These films are now being made because people have recognised people are watching films in different ways anyway. So they're, you know, they're made to watch on a tablet, on a phone, on the go. So do we maybe expect, should, but we should expect a lot from them, obviously. It doesn't mean they should be bad films. Obviously, this one came with a lot of money and a lot of polish and a lot of, you know, famous people. But at the same time, I think you could do a lot worse than be sitting in on a Friday night with maybe nothing to watch and you've, you've got your Netflix subscription and you flick over to it. I think I said a similar thing about Bird Box, which maybe, again, is that is actually damning with faint praise. I mean, no praise. all I will say is, if Netflix didn't exist, this film would be going straight to ITV4 on a Thursday <laughs> evening at half eleven. I Disagree. I think at least it's, ITV Prime Time. Come on. No, it's, it's ITV Father and all over it, next to a Universal Soldier straight to DVD sequel. Uh, I, I think that's unfortunately where we're going to have to leave it. Uh, this is a, a very mixed review from the Bums and Seats team, but if you want to watch it, uh, Netflix have this streaming for you as of now. That is it for today's Bums on Seats. Uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, we will have a uh, choice of films for you, uh, not necessarily including, but do let us know via Facebook or Twitter if you'd like us to review Dumbo, Shazam or Pet Cemetery, uh, the remake that I am most nervous about. To take us out today is some of Clint Mansell's score from Out of Blue. Do join us again in a couple of weeks or find us on iTunes or the 105 website for the podcast. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>